How are you guys? Awesome. Um, who here loves Pastor Dex? Yeah? Um, <laughs> There's only one answer to that, isn't there? Um, I just want to take the time just to honor him as well, just because, like you said, I've had the time to privilege to journey with him over the past few years. And one thing that I love about Dex that you don't see in many pastors is that he leads with his palms wide open. So what I mean by that is he's not the kind of pastor who holds onto all his power, holds onto all his authority, but he's so willing to just release, so willing to just empower. Um, and part of that is pe- getting people like Gershom and myself to speak um, and things like that, just giving us that opportunity. So for that, thank you so much. And yeah, we love you. We honor you as well. So can we just give him a round of applause? Um, if you're from FCC, do you mind just giving a quick wave? Is it just, yeah, just a few of you guys at the back? Yeah, so these are some of the guys that, from our church. Um, I'm excited because they're here, one, to support me, but more excited because they get to meet you guys. Um, so w- what I love about this church, because Christy, my girlfriend, has been here quite a few times as well. What I love about this church is it really is a family. Um, everyone seems to know everyone. Everyone's so friendly, so loving. It, it resembles what it, what it seems like when I read the book of Acts, where people know each other, people fellowship together, people support one another. Um, and every time I come, I feel so supported as well and so loved. So I'm excited for them to meet you. Um, and I'm excited for two churches and brothers and sisters of Christ meeting one another and just building this unity as well. So, so hopefully you guys, our guys, make yourself known. <laughs> um, and yeah, it'll be exciting after this as well. Um, so if you don't know me, my name's Arthur. I'm a high school math teacher. I am a relatively simple guy. I only took my faith more seriously around five, six years ago. And over the course of the five, six years, I've heard thousands of sermons, as many of you have as well. Uh, And a lot of them have been really, really well communicated. Um, A lot of them have been super intellectually stimulating and well exposited. But the ones that have really spoke to me uh, really, really deeply, the ones that I still remember today are the ones where the speaker was just really real, right? Where he just shares out of his own experiences and the things that God's been teaching him that he wants to share with the rest of the people as well. So hopefully, uh, that's something that I hope to do today. I um, just want to share with you guys something that God's been teaching me throughout this whole year, um, and it's been a fascinating journey as well. So it's a simple truth, but I think it's profound at the same time. Um, so you guys ready? Yeah. Awesome. Um, let me start with a story. So is it okay if I move this? I'm going to move this down just because, sorry, I like to like have more space because I tend to just <laughs> move around. But um, let me start with a story. Um, this is by a Christian author who actually had a vision one day. So the vision took him up to heaven and he was uh, an army for the living, living Lord. So what happened was he was, had this full armor of, uh, full armor of God, uh, sword of the spirit and shield of faith and all that kind of stuff. But over the armor, he actually had a fisherman's net that was a little bit dirty. It covered his whole body. He couldn't see what was underneath. It was a little bit smelly. It smelled like the ocean, little bits of seaweed stuck on the fisherman's net. And it wasn't very clean, but that was the outfit that he was given. And every single time the Lord Jesus says, charge, all of them would charge, fight their spiritual battle. And every single time they will win. So one day as he was polishing his uh, sword of the spirit, uh, he noticed his fisherman's net again. He was wondering what was underneath. So he slowly took it off and he realized what was underneath was this glowing, shiny gold armor that it was absolutely beautiful. And everyone around him was going, wow, you, are, you look awesome in that kind of thing. And he goes, all of you guys have it as well. Just take off your fisherman's net and you will all look shining together. So at the, they all took it off. And before you know it, the whole armor, the whole army, sorry, was just glowing in gold. and It was this majestic sight. 
And then the Lord Jesus shouts, charge again, and they all charge. But this time, because the golden armor was so bright that when the light shined onto the armor, it reflected into their eyes and they were blind and they couldn't see. And moreover, some people were still admiring how good they looked. They weren't even looking at the Lord. So that day, they suffered a tremendous defeat for the first time in, this, in, this, in the history of heaven. So fictional story, guys. Um, um, so this man, in, in absolute disgrace and shame, he was hiding in the bushes and the angel found him and threw him back the fisherman's net. And he said this, take this and keep it on. This is your humility. Without it, one cannot see the Lord. So I want to talk a little bit about humility uh, tonight because that's been a journey that God's been taking me through. And it's not something that's talked about a lot because maybe it's hard for the speaker to talk about humility. It, it's this taboo topic where the moment you talk about it, it seems like you're now prideful about it. Um, but, um, but it's a journey that God's been taking me on, and I just want to share uh, what He's been teaching me. Um, and I think it's a vital part because, as the angel said, without humility, you won't see that you need Jesus in your life. So uh, before I speak, before I talk on today's passage, um, it's on Romans. I just want to give you a bit of a context for this passage. Okay, so Romans 3. Um, it happened around 20 years after the Apostle Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus. So after that, Paul had, uh, Jesus had died, he had resurrected. And um, the next part of God's redemptive plan to bring all of humanity back to himself is actually to use Paul as a catalyst, uh, as a catalyst to spread this gospel movement to the Gentiles as well. So Paul is on the way to Rome, and he's not too sure if he'll ever make it there. So in, in preparation of that visit, what he does is he actually writes them a letter, just like how he writes letters to the Corinthian church, the Thessalonian church, and all that stuff. He writes the Romans, uh, the, the Romans a letter as well. But this one kind of is quite holistic and encapsulates the essence of the Christian faith um, because he's not sure whether he will be able to make it there or not. So he starts with actually the foundational doctrine of sin. So in chapter 1, he talks about how all the Gentiles are actually sinful um, that because they haven't acknowledged God and given Him glory. And in chapter 2, he says, even Jews, God's very own people, are sinful as well because they violated God's law. And then here, we read in chapter 3, verse 23 to 24, a really familiar verse. 23, for all have sinned, for the, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Um, Father God, we are so privileged to just be able to gather together in a space like this freely, to just hear your word being preached. Um, and it's such a privilege for me to be able to just have the, have the opportunity to share your word as well. So, so God, we fully acknowledge that without your spirit speaking through me, that there will be no life change in this place. So just as the branch needs the vine to produce life, God, I just pray that you will be here, that we will be connected to you, and that we would receive directly from you as well. And God, if there's any sense of pride in my heart where I want partial glory for this or any kind of praise, God, and I know there is still some of that pride in me right now, God, I just pray that you would just take that away so that you will actually get all the glory for tonight. So God, as we leave this place, God, I pray for the people here, for Oikos Church, that people will leave more in love with you, and just, just, yeah, just trusting you more and just want to spend more time with you and want to follow you in a deeper way as well, God. And God, I pray that the life change will only draw people here closer to your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So tonight I want to talk about two increasing revelations that God's been showing me uh, that has 
been teaching me to live a life where I'm humble so that I'll always look to God in humility rather than looking to myself in pride. Um, the first one is the depth of our sin. So Romans 23.23 says, For all have sinned, so all of us have sinned, and we're fall short of the glory of God. And this is a familiar verse for a lot of us. Um, and, but the interesting thing about sin is that we know we sin, we know we make mistakes, we know we fall short of the glory of God, but for some reason we tend to, many of times, especially if we're seasoned Christians, we tend to downplay the seriousness of the consequence. We tend to almost see sin as this scale with righteousness where we go, as long as we do more good to cover up the bad, uh, God will be okay with that. And you know that you're that kind of Christian if, let's say you intentionally sin, you do something you know is wrong and God's not happy with, but the next, the next moment you're serving in church and volunteering for like three, four hours of your time and you start saying, you know what, God, because I did all that stuff, surely that little white lie is not that big of a deal, right? When you start thinking that way and you start feeling bad for your sin and as a result, you start doing more good things to cover it up, you know that something is wrong. Now, theologically, we all know that, but the, the unfortunate reality is a lot of us still live as if that works, in, in, the way, in the way we live our lives, the way we make decisions, and the way we act as well. So I want to explain a little bit. So if you take a look at this graph in the next slide, this is the first, there's two ways Christians can live their lives. The first way is man striving towards where God is. So I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience, but either you're giving someone counsel or someone is giving you advice, but when you start thinking things like, hey, like, I'm not really feeling close to God lately, um, what should I do? And the advice you get might be, hey, have you been reading your Bible? Have you been praying? Have you been serving in church? Are you connected to a small group? Because if you're not, maybe that's why, right? So there's a bit of truth in that. There is a bit of truth in that because there's an effort on our part as well. But when the focus is on you, are you praying? Are you reading? Are you doing this and are you doing that? You notice that it's actually us trying to do the right things to get to where God is. And the problem with that is two things. If you're on the receiving end for that, it breeds con uh, condemnation because you start thinking, oh, I'm not close to God because it's my fault. Because I don't wake up early enough. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I haven't been motivated to do all this stuff. I don't have the heart of generosity to do this. So because it's my fault, I'm not close to God. But on the giver side of things, the person giving that advice, it breeds pride, right? So you start saying things like, hey, look at me, like, I'm working full-time, but I still wake up an hour before I go to work just to read my Bible. I go home and I pray every night. I'm always giving my tithes to the church. I'm always making time. Even though I'm so busy, I'm still making time for church commitments. Look at me. That's why I'm close to God, and that's why you're not close to God. You notice how prideful that sounds? You'll never say that, but that's what you're thinking as you're giving people that kind of advice. Now, that's religion. Essentially, what you're doing is you're relying on your moral goodness, your self-will, your ability to say, because of all the things I'm doing, I'm now close to God. And that's ex exactly what God rebuked the Pharisees for, right? Now, let's take a look at how, the, how we live in a gospel-centered way. Okay? The gospel-centered way of living, which is how God wants us to live, starts with God. So we, hear, we read about God, we experience God, we experience His goodness, and as a result, what we experience as we see God as someone who is infinitely holy and powerful is that we also experience His grace, which the word grace essentially translates to other English words like favor, kindness, blessing. So this God who is infinitely holy, we experience His kindness, His goodness, His favor, something that we don't deserve at all, and as a result, what that gives us is gratitude. 
Right, we're so thankful that this God who's given us something that we don't deserve at all, but it's something that's amazing. And as a result, we're so thankful. And because we are so thankful for God for all that He has done, it makes us want to be more like Jesus, right? Be more Christ like. But you see the difference there because this one, we're starting with who God is, and out of receiving His love, receiving His grace, it makes us want to be more like God. But on the side of religion, we, start, we try to do things to earn God's love. So on one side, we are receiving God's love and responding in Christ-likeness. On this side, we are trying to respond first in order to hope to receive. Now that order, getting it wrong, it seems like a small thing, seems like a simple thing, but it will totally mess up your Christianity if you keep living a life like the religious way. It really will. Now, the problem with that is that unfortunately as well, because our human heart is sinful, is that the default of our human heart is actually to swing back to religion. Time and time again, because we are naturally uh, relatively responsible as human beings, we want to right our wrongs, right? So if we wrong our friend, let's say Gershom's my friend, and I make a mistake and he's upset, I want to right that wrong. So I want to say, Gershom, I'm so sorry, will you, will you accept my apology? And as a Christian, he has to say yes, right? <laughs> what, and then in a, workplace, <laughs> in a workplace, I might mess up as well. And part of me being a responsible human being, I, I want to right that wrong. So I'll start working longer hours. I'll do whatever I can in my firm so that I can cut the company's costs, cut the company's time so that they can appreciate me again, right? The part of us just wants to have that security where we can take control whenever we mess up. But... That doesn't work with our faith. It doesn't actually work with our relationship with God because something about our sin that we have to acknowledge is that it's so deep that it's actually completely irredeemable by our own efforts. And this is hard for a seasoned Christian or a long-time leader, pastor, people that serve many hours to accept because you might say, does that mean that one lie that I said when I was 10 years old I still can't make up for that after 10, 20 years of service and volunteering and giving and generosity. And the unfortunate answer is, yes, sir, you're absolutely correct. And I want to explain why. Um, Maybe if I can get someone just up. Maybe Shane, do you mind just coming up? Give him a round of applause. Uh, Just stand here. This is, uh, do you guys remember Richard Blake from a couple of weeks ago? So this is an analogy he showed us, and I love it. So I don't take any credit for this, but let's imagine Sh- Shane and I are just here, and I just want to slap him in the face, okay? Am I allowed to do that? No. <laughs> so let's say I just slap him in the face, okay? That's obviously not the right thing to do, right? So how would I write that wrong? As a friend, I might just apologize, yeah? And if he accepts it, we're now friends again, and I've write that wrong. But what if Shane wasn't just a Shane from Oikos Church? What if Shane was a police officer, what if I now slap Shane, the police officer, in the face? What will happen? Probably I would get arrested, right? I'll probably get taken back to the station and some questions asked. Probably nothing too serious, but at least it's a lot more serious than when it was just Shane, the church buddy, yeah? yeah. Notice, that, notice that it changed even though Shane is still Shane. It's the same person, but because his title changed, my consequence has changed as well. Yeah. What if Shane was the prime minister of Australia? which is a little bit hard to imagine. But, <laughs> but let's, say, <laughs> let's say I slap Shane, the prime minister, in the face. What would happen then? What's, what would my consequence be? What would my cost be? It would be so much greater, right? I'll immediately be probably arrested for some kind of assault towards a government authority. Yeah, you notice that as the, the, the title and the authority of the person increases, even though my action of wrong is exactly the same, my cost and my consequence increases as well. 
So thanks, Jane. Can you just get you to sit back down? Thank you. Thank you. What if I slap God in the face? What if I slap God in the face with one of my sins? What would be the cost for that? Because our God is infinitely good, so wouldn't that make our cost and consequence infinitely high as well? So how would I pay for that? I would take out my wallet, I'll give God my credit card, just say, hey, just use as much of it as you want. It still won't be enough, not because I'm poor, well, I am, but, but also because financially I can't cover that debt, right? So I go, okay, well, all my liquid asset is gone, so I'm going to give you my, my laptop and my bag and my car and my, my mum's house that I'm living in because it's not even mine, but just have it, you know? And, and that still won't be enough. And God would still say, this is an infinite penalty. It's not enough. And I'll go, how would I pay for this sin? You, you know what? I'll, God, I'll give you actually the most valuable thing in my life. My family, my girlfriend, and my closest friends, everyone who is precious to me, I'll give them to you. And God will still say, it's not enough. So you go, God, I have nothing left. The only thing I can give you is my life. Take my life for the sin that I've committed to you. And God will still say, I'm sorry, but that's not enough. So what does that leave us? What that leaves us is firstly, we realize how deep our sin is because we can never pay it off by our own efforts. But secondly, we can only come to a state of hopelessness where we have to say, God, I need your help. (laughs) And the only thing that can happen is for God to send his own son down, a son who is God himself, who is infinitely good, to cover our infinite penalty. Only then can our sin be wiped off. So when we realize no matter how talented we are, how competent we are, and some of you guys are, I'm sure some of you guys who are working are managers and executives and stuff like that in your firm, and some of you guys who are youth leaders have been serving for ages as well, and you've brought so much to God. You've brought so much service, so much talent, so much commitment, so much time, so much sacrifice, so much love. But when we realize that none of that is enough to cover even one sin, we realize how hopeless we actually are. Now, as if that's not enough to humble us, The other thing about sin, firstly, it's irredeemable. Secondly, it's also inevitable that we will keep on sinning as well. So one is enough for us to unable to redeem ourselves, but we keep on sinning time and time again. And biblical history tells us this. So when you read the Old Testament um, before that, uh, have you guys ever given yourself hypotheticals? So hypotheticals and things, conditions that God would give you, if God met these conditions, then you wouldn't sin. Right. Have you guys ever thought about things like that? Like, what, would, what kind of world will it be if God just did this and I wouldn't sin? So I'll give you a few examples. If God just created a world that, where there was no sin, then we wouldn't sin, right? As simple as that, right? What about this? If God just, um, what if God just, one thing, one thing I used to ask God was, God, I'm not a very spiritual person, a bit skeptical of all this prophecy, tongues, you know, miracles, healing, all that kind of stuff. If you just really, really healed someone in front of my eyes, I would believe you for the rest of my life. Right? If someone just had a leg that was like dislocated and was just like sticking out and the bone was out and then we prayed and then the bone just like moved in and just, just healed itself, I'll be like, God, I'll believe you for the rest of my life. I don't know about you guys. That's something that I've asked God. Um, and, and what about other hypotheticals? Things like, God, if you just gave us instructions every day, like how to live our lives when we wake up to, have to, to the point when we go to sleep, if we just followed that, if you just gave us that, just gave us clarity on how to live our life every day, then I wouldn't sin. Or, God, if you just gave me someone really, really godly, like if someone just walked through with me, walked life with me and just guided my life and just pointed me to you all the time, then I wouldn't sin as well. 
Have any of you guys ever thought of or heard these kind of hypotheticals? Anyone? Yeah? A few of you? Now, the interesting thing about the Old Testament is that when you read through it as a big picture, God has actually given mankind every single one of these opportunities. So let's start from the start. God created the world without sin, and he said it was good. But somehow, Adam and Eve still found a way to sin, right? So that defeats the first hypothetical. Secondly, we look at the story of Moses and the Israelites, and God gave them 10 plagues that were evidently miracles, right? With the parting sea and the frogs and the water turning into blood and just the first sons all dying after the Spirit of God hovers through the city, all that kind of stuff. These are miracles. You can't deny that's not God, right? They experienced that. They saw the power of God. But a little while later, when they didn't ran, ran out of food, they started complaining again, and they wanted to go back to Egypt, right? After that, God gave the Israelites the law, Right? It couldn't be any clearer than that. He literally gave them a list of things you do to receive a blessing, the list of things you can't do, otherwise you'll invoke judgment, and a list of things to do if you make a mistake and you can still be forgiven. <laughs> right? can't be any clearer than that. In the Old Testament, no other gods gave their people that kind of clarity to say, follow me. If you do it this way, you're absolutely affirmed and assured that I love you and you can live in my presence. No one else gave them that. But still, the Israelites found a way to sin. Lastly, the Israelites go, oh, it's because we don't have a king. We don't have a king to guide us through. So other nations have a king, but we don't have a king. So if you God, just give me a king, give us a king, then we can live a good life again. So God gives them a king, but turns out the kings themselves can also go astray. Surprise, surprise. And whenever the king is evil, he leads all the people to evil as well. So actually, what the Old Testament as a big picture shows you is two things. First thing, it teaches us about God. It teaches us that God really, Scripture is right when he says God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Because for thousands of years, God should have invoked judgment on the nation of humanity, but he didn't. And God is a covenant-keeping God because after Noah's flood, he said, never again will I wipe out this nation like this again. So God is a covenant-keeping God who's slow to anger and abounding in love. And that's amazing. But it also teaches us about humanity, that we are just, we have totally without excuse, and we're just, our state of our heart is one that's sinful, and no matter how hard we try and how many opportunities God gives us, we still can't stop sinning, right? So when you think about that, when you think about that, it, it, it humbles you because it, makes me, it made me realize, God, all this time I want to live right. I want to give you glory. I want to do all these things for you so that I can have a relationship with you. And, and then I realized, actually, there's nothing I can offer God. There's absolutely nothing I can do for God so that I can say I have a relationship with God. It, if God doesn't do something in my heart, I can't have that relationship. Now, that sounds real doom and gloom, but... What that does is it brings us to a point of hopelessness where we need help and we seek help. And as we seek help, we experience the second increasing revelation that God's been showing me. And that's the height of God's grace. A um, couple years ago, when I was still fairly earlier in my Christian faith, I, I asked God one night, I said, God, I don't, I don't really understand this word grace. Like, a lot of people seem to just chuck it out and it seems to fit in any sentence. And in church, whenever they chuck out the word grace, people just seem to amen it, even though it, every sentence seems to be different. And, and I was just saying, God, I don't really understand it. Can you kind of explain it to me? And then I went to bed. And what happened after was the first of not many encounters where God actually answered me through a dream. 
Um, so by nature, I'm quite a skeptical person. So I don't usually say things like this unless I'm very, very sure. Um, I don't ever dream. And the only time when I dream and when I was a kid, I would forget everything um, the moment I wake up. But for some reason, when I asked God this question, God answered me specifically answering this question. I woke up completely remembering everything. And it made me want to worship God more. So I would like to think it's from God. Okay. And being a math teacher, um, maybe God knew that. Well, God did know that. So he actually showed it to me in a graph, which is a little bit nerdy, a little bit nerdy, but I'll show you what the graph is. Okay. So what I saw in the graph was this. Okay. So the, the X axis <laughs> is time. Some of you guys are like, I didn't come here for maths. And, um, and the Y axis is goodness. Okay. So the green line is us people and the yellow line is God. So when we first accept Jesus and we have a relationship with God, what happens is we learn more about God, right? We read, about, uh, we read our Bibles, we learn more about how good God is. And as we learn about how good God is, we want to become better people ourselves as well because God changes us. So we become better people over time as well. But at some point in your Christian faith, you'll realize that actually you're not as good as you think you were, because God wants you to love, but you can't love. God wants you to forgive, but you can't forgive. God wants you to be humble, but you're so prideful. And God wants you to be generous, but you're so stingy, right? You realize all these things and you read 1 Corinthians 13 on love and you're like, I can't meet all those criterias. And you realize that actually you're not as good of a person as you thought you were. So you start to go down and you realize that that's actually who you are and not, not a very good person. But at the same time, God is getting better because God is perfect and he can't get any better, but you, your understanding of God can get better, right? So you start to know how good God is, and actually God is even more loving than you thought. God is more forgiving than you thought. God is more generous than you thought. So God starts getting better, but you start realizing that you're a sinful person. And then they come to this point where there's this huge gap between you and God, and you go, God, we are so far from each other. How can I possibly say I have a relationship with you? And then God told me this in the dream. He said, that gap... It's called grace. That gap is covered by grace. And that's why I had to send Jesus down to where you are to lift you up to where I am. And that just made total sense to me the moment I woke up. Did it make sense with the math graph? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, but the amazing thing about this grace is that even though it's freely given to us, verse 24, it says that it's, it's, it, and all of us are justified freely by his grace. It's freely given to us, but there's still a cost to it. And the cost wasn't absorbed by us. It's absorbed by God. And because there's a cost to this grace, it demands a response. So when we receive this grace as Christians, we can't just go, great, we're saved. Now let's go back and doing whatever we were doing before. But it has to change our hearts. Yeah. And Bonhoeffer, he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I just want to read this out for you guys. He says this, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. We literally have to die to ourselves. But it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Life and life abundantly. It is costly because it condemns sin. But grace because it justifies the sinner. After all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Yet it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. And Paul, the man who wrote this letter, 
was a man who really, really captured the height of God's grace and the cost that was involved in how he needed to respond. Um, I want to spend a bit of my time, actually the remaining part of my time, sharing a devotional thought with you guys. Um, Something from Acts chapter 9, which is Paul's conversion. Um, There was a period of time when I was trying to reflect more in my, my time when I read my scriptures. And that's something that I really encourage you guys as well. A pastor once told me you should spend twice the amount of time reflecting than you spend reading scripture. And I think it's in the reflecting that you really come to see God's goodness in Scripture and where Scripture really comes alive. So I really want to encourage this process of reflecting. But in, the, in Acts 9, um, for those of you who are not f- too familiar with your Scriptures, uh, there's a guy called Apostle Paul. And before this time, he was actually a Christian hater. Okay? So he hated Christianity, but because he loved God. Okay? So there's controversy because he loved God. Like he hated Christians. And the reason for that was because Christians were a weird sect at the time. They knew the God of the Jewish God, but they didn't know that Jesus was actually the Son of God. So as a result, this Paul, who loved God so much, felt like this Christian group of people were actually interfering with their religion or interfering with their faith. And as a result, they wanted to arrest all of them because he loved God so much. Does that kind of make sense? So, so he's not really evil for the sake of evil. He's actually evil because he genuinely... Sorry, he's actually just acting wrong because he genuinely thought what his decisions were right. So he got permission to arrest more people and he's on his road to Damascus. And I'll just read this out for you guys. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The man traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, when we think of this, who's heard of this before? Just put your hand up. I'm sure majority of you guys. Yep, great. When we think of this passage and we read this passage, the part that usually catches our attention, next slide, is this part in orange, right? The part where there was a shining light and just Jesus just miraculously just spoke to them in audible light and voice. And we always say, oh, I wish Jesus encountered us in this way as well, right? And that's the part that caught my attention the, the last 10, 20, 50 times I read this passage as well. But this time when I spent a bit of time just pausing and reflecting on this passage, the part that stood could caught my attention was actually the very last sentence. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. So as I was reflecting, I was just asking myself, what happened for Paul to not eat for three days and three nights? Not eat or drink, sorry. Why did he fast? Right? And for those of you who have read through your scriptures, you'll see that generally there's two reasons why people fast. The first one is either for protection or for some kind of petition. Right? We're in trouble. God, we're going to fast. Can you please help me? The second one is out of repentance. God, we've done something really, really wrong. We're really, really sorry. So we're going to not fast and not, not, not eat and drink to show you that we're seriously sorry. I think in Paul's situation, it was actually both. Can you imagine being in Paul's shoes? Just step yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Think about this. You're so zealous for God that you're willing to kill people for it, right? Because you think you are God's general. You think you're the, mo- the one that loves God the most. And because you love God so much, you're willing to do all these dirty work for him. To get rid of all these people who aren't following God. Right? But suddenly, 
as he walks along Damascus, he realizes the bright light comes, Jesus speaks to him and he, it hits him that all this time when he thought he was doing God glory, he was actually killing God's people. All this time he thought God was pleased with him, God was actually so upset to see his people being arrested and killed. Right? All this time he was saying, God must be so, God must really, really be blessing me for all that I'm doing. He realizes actually the opposite. And he realizes all this time he has been persecuting and going against the God that he loved so much. Can you imagine how he would feel if the first time Jesus appeared to him, he was already blind? What would happen if Jesus came back again? Right? I would imagine Paul would be just sitting in a corner, just blind in Damascus, just intensely afraid, just, and the voice of Jesus just echoing in his head, just going, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul just going, God, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I didn't know. And I don't want any more judgment. Like, if the first time you, you saw me, I'm already blind, what's going to happen to me now? How is God going to torture me? How is God going to kill me? Because that's all I deserve, Right? So for three days, he's fasting, praying to God, just asking for relentment of judgment and for some kind of forgiveness. And he's just, he knows how sinful he is. At this point, Paul is fully aware of the depth of his sin, right? Then what happens? As you read along scripture, you realize that God sends this guy called Ananias to actually come and pray for Paul's eyes. And when he prays for Paul's eyes, scale-like things falls off his eyes and he sees again. And then Paul actually hears from Ananias that he goes, God actually said, you are his chosen instrument. That God's going to use you in powerful ways to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. You are actually going to partner with God to do amazing things with him and leave a legacy for the rest of your life. So what he thought he would receive was judgment. Instead, what he received was grace. Right. So from the depth of his sin, knowing that what he deserved was only judgment, what he received was the height of God's grace that covered even the sins of someone like Paul. So when you see the conversion of Paul in light of the shining lights and Jesus speaking audibly, none of us here can relate because none of us have had that experience. But when you see the conversion of Paul in light of the depth of his sin and the height of God's grace, all of us here can can relate because that's how we came into Christianity. And all of a sudden, this story of Paul makes sense to us as well. That we realize our sin, and then we realize God's grace, and that's why we say, God, we want to follow you for the rest of our lives. And as you read on, you actually see that this great apostle, he becomes more and more humbled in his journey as these two revelations continue to increase in his life. Let me show you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, one of the earlier letters that he writes, he writes this, he goes, I am the least of the apostles. So apostles are those who have a specific mandate from Jesus himself. So out of people like Apostle Peter and James and John, he goes, I'm the least of them and I don't deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. Around four years later, he writes a letter of Ephesians in prison. Okay, and this is what he says. He says, although I am, the less, I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, so I'm now not just least of the apostles, I'm least of all Christians. He goes, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of, grace, uh, of Christ. So see the change? He's progressed in his journey. He's done more for God, but for some reason, the way he views himself has lowered. 
A year later, he writes to his good friend or mentee, Timothy, and this is what he says. He goes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So see how Paul's opinion of himself changed. He goes, I am the least of all apostles, but apostles are pretty big people. And then he goes, I'm the least of all Christians, and now I'm the least of all, I'm the worst of all sinners. And what happens as you realize the depth of your sin and the height of God's grace is that it humbles you because humility is not so much about just thinking lowly of yourself, just being having a moderate view as if like whenever people praise you, you have to say like, no, 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 I'm not that good. That's not Christian humility. Humility is thinking less of yourself and more of God. And as you think more of God, you realize there's actually absolutely nothing about you that you can boast in, but there's everything about God that you can boast in. So... That was a man who captured God's grace, and that's someone we can learn from as well. Now, I want to close just by uh, sharing a little bit about my journey this year. Um, This year has been a transitional year for me. So for those of you that, like I said, I'm a math teacher, um, but I'm also stepping into ministry full-time next year. So I knew that was coming, so it was a year of transition for me. So in partial ways, it was really exciting because... um, the burden that I felt like God had given me about four or five years ago, as well as a specific prophecy that I received three and a half years ago saying that I will step into ministry when I'm 27. That's pretty exact. That's actually happening. Um, So for that to come to pass, it's really exciting because I'm like, this is actually where God's leading me and I can step into that confidently. But at the same time, it's actually a little bit nerve wracking because for whatever reason, um, people seem to have really high expectations of me. Um, And that's hard to meet. So for that reason, it's also nerve-wracking as well. So at the start of the year, I actually asked God, God, this is a transition year for me. Um, What should I be doing? What should I be doing to prepare myself for this role? And I actually wrote a list of all the things I can do. I wrote things like I can read my Bible cover to cover a few times. Uh, I could read one book a week to grow in my wisdom and stature as a pastor and leader. Uh, I could um, meet up regularly with my 30-plus young adult leaders um, regularly so that we build this relationship and trust and that they have my back when I start ministry. Um, I wrote down things like I, maybe I can sleep less. Maybe I can wake up, uh, sleep later, wake up early, and I, can, and I can pray, and I can deepen my faith, and maybe I just need to do more things, you know, just so that I'm more equipped. So I actually wrote this long list of things that I could do and I could focus on, and I actually presented that to God, and I said, God, this is what I think. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> um, and God being God, his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. He must have thought my di- list was just ridiculous um, because he just kind of put it aside and gave me something else. And this is a prompting that I've tried really hard to follow and obey this whole year. And all he told me was to slow down and to enjoy him. Yeah. So yeah. maybe I'll invite the worship team up um, for this last part. But... Um, it sounded so counterintuitive because over the over, because it, it just it's just not me. I'm a doer and I want to do things to prove myself. And it sounded so counterintuitive, but over the past ten months, I know exactly why God asked me to slow down. Because amongst a few other really key lessons I learned, this was one of them. And what God was showing me was that I could do everything I can for the rest of my life, and it's still not enough to right my wrongs with my sins with God, right? But as insignificant of a person I am, when God's grace is over my life, He can do so much through me in ways that goes completely beyond my understanding and imagination as well. And 
It's been a fascinating year because now I can stand before you and say, I now have, I now find infinite value in who I am as a person, not because I'm prideful of my achievements, but I'm prideful of the fact that the Holy God created me in His image. The Holy God actually loved me enough to die for me. And the Holy God now lives in me. And that's amazing. And there's value in every single one of you tonight for that same three reasons as well. So put aside all those less significant things like this is my achievement, this is my title, this is the things I do for God, this is the giving I've given God. Put all that aside because they're not important. The important thing is that God created you, God died for you, and God loves you. And just spend time pondering on that because that's your identity. For those of you who feel like you're not worthy of a person because you're not attached and you don't feel like people love you, remind yourself that God loves you so much that He died for you. For those of you that feel like there's not much that you can offer to the world and to the church around you, know that God created you in His image. There's something about God in every single one of you that is so valuable. All we need to do is find it and treasure it. And above all, if you think you're not very worthy, you have to remind yourself of the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside you. You're actually temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't put that down and let something else identify you when God is the reason why you're so precious. And I'm now so much more thankful than ever before. And I've I, this whole year, through all the hardship, through all the difficulties, through all the struggles, and I'm sure we've all had this, but I'm more content than ever before. Why? Because what I deserve is actually death. I actually shouldn't even be alive right now for all the things I've done wrong. God should have just ended my life, to put it bluntly. I shouldn't be alive at this point. But the only reason why I have grace, why I have life, sorry, is because of the grace of God. has given me life in my lungs so I can still breathe. The fact that I can wake up today rather than invoke judgment and be dying is purely because God loves me and God has allowed me to sustain life. That is so precious. So, stepping into ministry, what I love about this season is that I can now step into ministry not necessarily having upskilled, not necessarily having better skill sets, but I can step into ministry because through all this experience, I now love Jesus more. And Really, that's my heart for you guys tonight, Oikos Church, that as God, through the Holy Spirit, continue to reveal to you guys the depth of your sin, but at the same time, the height of God's grace, that you will be humbled in your journey so that you will walk humbly, always looking to the Lord, but not just humble in terms of thinking lowly of yourself, but fully assured and living a life that's bold because you know that God lives in you. And that's a precious thing that no one can ever take away from you if you profess to be a Christian and that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So what I hope really is that as we continue to walk with God, as we spend time with God, as we experience His grace that leads to gratitude, that points us to godliness, that every single day we'll love Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper so that nothing feels like a sacrifice anymore because anything that we can do is such a privilege. Me spending hours to prepare this message is a privilege. Me driving someone home is a privilege. Me being able to lead people is a privilege. Me being able to wash the dishes for my parents is a privilege because I'm actually alive right now because God gave me life. So 
There is no altar call tonight, but what I do want to do is, as a family, just respond by worshiping God together. Because the fascinating thing about worship is that two things happen: exaltation happens, and 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 you being humbled happens as well. Because you can't exalt God, lift Him up, unless you humble yourself down. And I think that's a beautiful thing, and it's in your humbling that you start to see the beauty and majesty of God as well. So why don't we all stand and let's just worship God for a moment?